185milesouth.com. Smash that Patreon button. One hundred and eighty five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. Introducing first, the challenger fighting out of the hard corner. From Oxnard, California, he fears no riff, he fears no spliff. He is the man who wrote what has proven to be undoubtedly the best LP of 2020, Retaliate 4, available now at IndecisionRecords.com. He is the incomparable Roger Camaro! And his opponent, fighting out of the core corner. From parts unknown, weight unknown, reason he didn't pick minor threat in the straight edge Super 7, unknown. It is the reigning, defending, undisputed 185 miles south trivia champion of the world, Daniel, these questions are too easy, Sant! Okay, and we send the first question to Roger Camaro. Roger, the Warriors are an American hardcore punk band originally from Tatchby, California. They followed their debut 7-inch release with a full-length album titled War is Hell, released on Eulogy Records in 2003. In 2005, it was reissued with two extra tracks and computer-accessible content under the title War is Hell Redux. In 2006, their second album, Beyond the Noise, was released. They then signed to Victory Records. In 2007, they released their third album, Genuine Sense of Outrage. Spell the singer's last name. <laughs> All right. Let me see if I can do this. Um, shit. L I. I have to like think it. L I. I could type something right. I'm typing yep. and I'm not looking it up. I promise. I swear to God. That. All right. I'll allow that. Is that okay? Um. All right, L-I-C-H-T-E-N-W-A-L-D-T. A point to Roger. That's what's up, yeah. dude. Knowing That's your friends' sure. names and how to spell them. That's what's up. <laughs> All right, we shoot it to Dan for his question number one. Dan, on the agnostic front, United Blood 7-inch, the singer is wearing a T-shirt of this Southern California punk band. Oh. Oh. I got my. I mean, I I know it's it's got to be bad religion, right? Because it's it's the cross. A point to the champ. Damn. Um, All right, we go to Roger for his question number two. <clears throat> Roger, this Canadian band put out an LP on Fat Records in 1993, which had a vacuum cleaner and a broom on the album cover. That would be propaganda. A point to Roger. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> 
one 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 and to Dan. Now, Dan, you've been warned that these are coming, Uh-oh. so no complaints from the champ. Okay, uh, Dan, what is Youngblood Records number one? I don't think I know that. Um, I can't take this pressure, 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 pressure. Too many things to do with grief, too much in it, too many things to make it. Too much, too much, too much, pressure, 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 pressure. Final answer. Um, rain on the parade. We got a Roger for the unlikely steal. Roger, what is Youngblood Records number one? I'm not even going to try. How about that? <laughs> it is the Rancor Flip the Switch 7-inch. Oh, <clears throat> yeah, it is. Yeah, dude, it is. <sighs> okay, and we go to Roger for his question number three. Roger, according to the first song on the first Good Riddance LP, who flies first class? America, dog. A point to Roger. All right. Go back to Dan. Don't call it a comeback, but you can in advance because he's the motherfucking champ. What's up? Dan, what does CBGB stand for? Country Blues CBGB, right? Uh, Country Blue Grass and Blues. A point to the champ. We're taking that, Ben. You added an and, but it's all good. Yeah, just Country Bluegrass Blues. And, uh, and do you know what the O M F U G underneath it is? Other music from the underground. Yeah, no, but Ben, you can pronounce it because it's pretty wild. Other music for uplifting gourmandizers. Gourmandizers, dude. What? Yeah, I'm not that rude to put that in a question. Um, okay, <laughs> let's go to Roger for his question number four. Roger, which came first, the Happy Meal or the first Minor Threat Seven Inch? Ihole. Um Damn, that's uh that's probably that's a good one. I'm just I'm just gonna go with minor threat. We go to Dan for the potential steal. Dan, which came first, the Happy Meal or the first minor threat seven inch? Well my old friend Mayor McCheese told me that it's the Happy Meal. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Meal nineteen seventy nine, minor threat nineteen eighty one. Damn. Yeah. And and I did that one because Ben got on my ass on the text today and he's like, all the food questions are all a year apart. So two years apart, Ben. I, I noticed that. I saw what you did. <laughs> all right, Dan. Round number four. This indie rock band released an LP titled Red Medicine in 1995. Fugazi. Appointed Dan. <laughs> I'm not taking the bait. <laughs> go to roger for his round number five and it is a true or false question roger true or false the self-titled third lp by face to face came out on a major label that is true that is true a point to roger came out on AM records in the year 1996 and dan your round five question which happened first? Uniform Choice releases their LP, Screaming for Change, or pro wrestler Bruiser Brody is stabbed to death by Invader One? Ooh. 
they're both in the same year, I believe, right? They're both 86. Um, that's tough. I, I did just recently re-watch the, um, the Ring. Um, Dark Side of the Ring. Dark Side of the Ring, yeah. Um, I'm going to say Bruiser Brody had to have lived the life knowing the greatness of Screaming for Change before he passed on. So I'm saying Screaming for Change came out first. Point of the champ. Wow. But you're, you got a point for what matters. But again, showing my sensitive side, Uniform Choice, 1986, Bruiser Brody stabbed to death July 17th, 1988. Two oh, years wow. apart because I'm sensitive. Um, <laughs> we go to Roger for round number six. Roger, Andy Diehard sang for this band that was also the name of a hit U2 song. <laughs> and I'm looking at the poster that says uh, with or without you on it. A point to Roger. Okay, we go to Daniel for his round number six. Daniel, what band? Oh, here we go. Right in your wheelhouse again. So no complainies. Oh, Dan, God. what band has the first music video? On the Cinema Beer Goggles VHS tape. I love that you say this is right in my. <laughs> I mean, we're getting closer and closer to me getting the Cinema Beer trilogy back piece. It's coming. <laughs> um, of course, it's Rob Moran's favorite, Buttermouth. A point to the champ. It is gutter mouth. You knew the answer. Right. <laughs> so good. So good. Okay. Let me bring this into the final round. What? What? Okay. All right, Ben, let's go to you for the subtotals. All right, Dan has six points, and Roger has four points. So you can wager as many as six points, Dan, and as few as zero. And Roger, you can wager as many as four points and as few as zero. All right, Dan, you're leading, so we go to you first. How many points are you going to wager? One. All right, one point for Dan. And Roger, how many points would you like to rate wager? Oh, I might as well just go all in. Love Roger, it. with that YOLO spirit that we support. Okay, Roger, let's see. You are getting number 20, which is the green button. Here we go. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my wow. God. Let's play it a few times. Here we go. Three times in a row. I can hear it, man. I mean, I hear something. I don't know if it's what it is, but <laughs> sounds like an epileptic fit. <laughs> I mean, the first word sounds like he's saying you, but he probably isn't. And uh, the other half, other half sounds like he's saying leaving me. So I'll just go you leaving me. But we all know that there's no way that's what he's saying. Well, you are correct. That is not what he's saying. He's uh, <laughs> he's saying the spirit remains. 
Everybody sing along. <laughs> there it Was is. Cut off before me. Here we go. Listen one more time, champ. Nope. Oh, spare on my. Right. It sounds like it cuts off, but I'd have to listen to the actual song to know if it cuts off. But it does sound like he's I saying the spirit. Re-. If you said the spirit remain, I would give it to you. I think that's what he says, even though it's supposed to be the spirit remains. But why correct Rick? You know, anyway, Dan, how you feeling? Oh, I've been in. I've been in the 20, I've been in the back to basics gym doing some straight punishment to my ears doing the hard yards <laughs> well here we go yellow button <laughs> it's an easy one I gave you an easy one can i have it four times in a row please you can sir here we go Oh God. Um It's my life. He actually says truth comes with time. Everybody sing along. <laughs> truth comes with time. <laughs> and we go to Ben for that final <laughs> the final score. All, all the blood has drained out of my body. <laughs> All right. What do we got? The champion Dan had six points. He wagered one. He did not get the 25 to life round correct because no one ever has to this day. And that left him with five points. Roger had four points. He wagered everything. And like everyone before him, he did not get it correct. So he ended up with zero points, making Dan the remaining champion. Damn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I at least get like a bonus high five for knowing that truth comes with time comes from the song Loose Wit Da Truth? Oh, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll give someone that as a out. trivia question, and then if they get it wrong, you can have that easy steal, huh? Well, I've, I, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm doing some training to try and get these money back to life. <laughs> And it doesn't fucking matter. And I'm punishing um, my coworker, making him listen to it. I think that's the only bad song on that record. Way to go, dude. What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, we are talking hardcore. Helping out. You know him. You love him. It is Ben Edge, a.k.a. Ben Merlis, a.k.a. Bedge. What's up, Ben? What's going on? Also helping out, it is Anthony Popolardo, a.k.a. Pops. What's up, Pops? What's up, people? How's everyone doing? Yeah, man. So today we are talking about, well, we're going to start off by talking about the Revolution Summer in uh, 85 in D.C. And because I am not an expert in this, we're going to do this starter kit and shoot it to bed. You know, son, you're not a kid anymore. Oh, no, I go to shows that I already know all this stuff. Well, they don't teach you about everything at shows. Okay, Mr. Smarty Bands. So just listen, when boys and girls get a little older, they start getting interested in punk and hardcore subgenres. Starter kit. Yeah. So first off, I want to say that there's a great podcast called End on End that um, it's where they talk about the Discord catalog from 
uh, you know, number one to whatever they end up at. And um, I've guest hosted on some of those episodes. So we, we, I've, we have actually talked about some of the records I'm going to talk about now on that podcast. But um, so Revolution Summer is sort of like third grade for the DC punk scene. You know, if like first grade is um, the Slicky Boys and then maybe there's a, a grade in between. Um, I don't know, like a 1.5 grade. <laughs> That could be Bad Brains and Teen Idols. And then you've got this explosion pretty much I attributed to Minor Thread and Discord Records being the being like the second grade, like the establishment of like, we're hardcore. This is hardcore music. And then around 83, a lot of these bands start breaking up and a lot of suburban kids start coming into the scene and the scene gets much bigger and much more violent. Um, there's a big skinhead contingent happening in DC around that time. And minor threat breaks up. The faith breaks up. Um, the faith at the very end put out an EP called subject to change, which has, which at this point they're a five piece and it's much more melodic than the record before that, the void faith split. And so there are two guitarists, at this point are um, Eddie Janey, who, you know, just joins the band at the very end. And then their, um, the original guitarist of the band um, who was in um, SOA before that, uh, whose name is Mike Hampton. I don't know why I'm, I was spacing on his name. He's a Facebook friend of mine. Sorry, Mike Hampton. You won't be listening to this anyway. Um, so Mike Hampton and Eddie Janey are sort of like the architects of the guitar sound that would be Revolution Summer because Eddie Janey forms Rites of Spring in 84 with Guy Picocho and Brendan Canny, future members of Fugazi. And then uh, Mike Hampton forms Embrace with Ian Mackay. So there's sort of like a musical chairs going on in the scene. And so this new generation of bands starting around 84, 85 um, are much more emotional sounding and more melodic sounding than the stuff that came before them in general. And so Amy Pickering, who's someone in the DC punk scene, she's like bored at her you know, government internship or whatever. And she's, she starts creating a uh, ransom note letters that talk about like the, re- like revolution summer's coming. And she mails these letters anonymously to anyone in the punk scene whose address she has. And she looks back on this as like, you know, kind of an embarrassment, like, God, that was so corny to do, but the term revolution summer sticks. And so that's kind of cool. Like how many, how many, eras of a scene actually have a name associated with them. Not that many summer of love, summer 67 in San Francisco being one of them. Um, so revolution summer is the summer of 85 in DC and rights of Springs LP comes out, um, which is a big deal. This is a band that we're going to talk about them a little bit later, but they are uh, super volatile. Like if, you went to see them play. There is a good chance every instrument 
would be broken by the end of the set and not like we're upset. So we're going to smash all our equipment. It's more like we're just completely like uh, unhinged. And uh, it's sort of like they were emotional, but not, not mopey. So um, they would jump around a lot and, and um, just give it a thousand percent until there was nothing left. And the cool thing about the album is they recorded it that way too. A guitar, bass, and drums recorded live, and they were they had a strobe light on in the studio, and they're just jumping around, just going nuts the entire time. And then somehow, it doesn't sound like a, a, a total train wreck, which is unbelievable. I I'd be so sketched out in a recording studio. I'm like a statue. I'm like trying to make sure I hit every note on every string correctly. And then so embrace. Uh, comes not that much longer later, maybe sometime in 85 they form. And uh, so this is essentially the original lineup of the faith with Ian Mackay singing instead of his younger brother, Alec, who was the singer of the faith and embrace. um, There's almost like a, uh, there's a stern vibe to them. It's like um, Ian is super pissed off. He's just as emotional as Guy is in Rites of Spring, but it's a different kind of emotion. It's more of a, uh, I'm so sick of what's going on around me, and I'm just going to tell you in plain English what I think is wrong. And um, so they record an album in 86 kind of after they decide they've broken up after only playing i don't know a handful of shows 10 or so and then that album doesn't come out until 87 uh so i picked for want of by rights of spring and dance of days by embrace and then um there's another band gray matter which is ex-members of iron cross and they put out an album in 85 called food for thought. And they're sort of like, they're like kids who grew up playing music together. A lot of them. And the drummer's father actually owns a restaurant called food for thought, where a lot of these early like revolution summer style shows start happening in the, towards the end of 84 and um, gray matters sort of like, I want to say they have more of a sixties influence. Cause another thing is, a lot of these bands, they worship the Beatles, even though you don't really hear the Beatles in their music. There is a somewhat of a, like a sixties garage rock vibe, especially with gray matter, I feel. And so after that LP comes out, they put out an EP on discord called take it back. And it's very apparent that rights of spring have influenced gray matter. So now they're starting to sound more like what we think of as a revolution summer band. And so I picked Shoots and Ladders, which is the first song off the Take It Back EP. Um, and then for the final, well, and then there's a couple more songs I picked for for the starter kit. One is, oh, well, what was that, Zach? Oh, I just wanted to jump in and clarify. Everyone, there's a playlist for every episode. So you can go to 185milesouth.com, click that playlist link at the top of the page. Ben's laying out this uh, this oral history of of the revolution summer, but he also chose some choice tracks so you can, uh, you know, have a soundtrack to the starter kit. So that's what he's talking about when he's talking about the songs that he chose. Yeah. And so 
musically, I think the biggest outlier of this whole scene is Beefeater, who um, Thomas Thomas Squip, who was a, I believe, a Swiss immigrant, who was the drummer of Red Sea, who is on the Flex Your Head comp from '82. He is the singer of this band, and they're kind of like a funk punk band. And they form around the same time as the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but on a separate coast. And I don't think they were aware of each other at all um, until they were completely established and probably had records out. But um, the thing about Beefeater is they had an album from 85 called Plays for Lovers. And then they, and that was on Discord. And then they leave Discord and they put out an EP called Need a Job on some label called olive tree records. And then they come back for uh, a, a final LP on discord called house burning down. And the song I picked just things is the first track on house burning down. And you'll hear an in, what they call the intro lewd, which is Ian Mackay thanking you for uh, purchasing this hardcore product, a, a pretty tongue in cheek thing from Ian. And, um, this is like, I don't really, I'm not that much of a fan of Beefeater, but I really like this one song. And um, I don't know. I mean, Zach, like, y- you'd never heard this before. We make fun of like funky bands, but like, there's, I don't know why there's something about this song that I dig. What'd you think of it? I mean, it's like so in your face and wild that I think that maybe just as a side note, it's kind of fun. It's interesting because it's so ridiculous, right? Because we hate, like funk bass, we make fun of the Red Hot Chili Peppers being like the worst band in the world. And here's a band that, like, if you aren't aware of them, they sound like, I mean, this sounds like fleas in the band, you know? So it's entertaining that aspect. The The thing about this song is they have like this middle part in the song where it gets all spacey and it's super rad. Like they create this style of music that is like, really cool i think and then they just go back to funk and it's like oh man you know so there there's something creative and interesting going in here i think that you know just to listen to one track it definitely keeps you on your toes but yeah do i like it no it's terrible yeah i, I like I think, it pops what's your take on this song well i was going through like all their tunes because there's just so many like curveballs in there um discography and i like i'm terrible with song titles but there's that one that uh like tomas sings it's like an acoustic track that's really pretty it sounds like it could be like on a 60s record it doesn't make any sense and then they'll go into like they have a couple sort of ripper tracks that sound like bad brains that like tone the funk down it's but it's the like zach said the funk when they lean into that it's so in your face that it's, it's like hard to separate um, but I, I do like this track. It's fun. Like it's super bouncy. And I think like a good way to look at what they introduced was like, you know, they're obviously like this, they had this vegetarian message. It was a big deal. This spiritual message, this protest message. And they kind of approached the band as more like an art project, which it's not the newest thing, but it's pretty new to, to introduce that into, you know, on the heels of like the bands that had broken up in 1983. So I think, I just think of them as a band that was aware of this entire aesthetic. And that is 
it had a lot of influence on other DC bands to think outside the box and think of their band as a project rather than just a collection of songs or a style of music. And, and I think that gets a little lost. So is that the approach though, that they're trying to not have like themselves be a cohesive band at all? You know, I think of, you know, something like the Minutemen where they can go off like in any direction. It's like, we're not tied to a style. I think that's part of it. Cause I might be wrong. I, I believe it was around this time or maybe a little before, a little after where they first introduced this idea uh, that Ian had called Grand Union, where they were just going to get up and have different ensembles all the time and incorporate everyone from the scene. So I think like that was a like a bubbling idea to like to really get out of these molds, you know. I think that's a success. Ben, do you want to talk Soulside? Yeah. Um, so Soulside started as a band called Lunch Meat with Umlauts Over the U and Lunch Meat, and they changed their name at some point, probably because Lunch Meat Lunch Meat with Umlauts Over the U is like the worst fucking name any band could ever be. But before <laughs> doing that, they put out a split seven inch with the band Mission Impossible, and that was eighty five. Yeah, so that was uh uh. Revolution Summer, and but ben, ben, how about the 2020s when uh, when the band Tupperware comes along? They're like, "I'll see your lunch meat and give you a container to put it in and and ace your worst band name." Yeah, but it does Tupperware have umlauts over the U? I don't think so. Um, <laughs> but this this split seven inch is, um, by my estimation, not very memorable. The most significant thing about it is the drummer of mission impossible is dave grohl and this is the first thing record he ever appears on and um th- once uh soul once lunch meat becomes soul side the following year they record their first album less deep inside keeps for ian mckay's younger sister amanda mckay's record label sandwich records and they're still trying to find their sound. Um, they, I'm a big fan of this record. The song I picked is I find the other side because, uh, it shows up later on, on the, God, it's like a single, I think a live version of the same song shows up later on, uh, on one of their records. So yeah, the, the bass seven inch. Yeah. Bass one Oh three other side. Yeah. 89. So, this band is, I'm trying to think, Bobby Sullivan is a nice guy by all accounts, open-minded dude. has got white guy with dreadlocks, which is pretty uncommon for the 80s. You see that a lot more in the 90s. The Soulside were not stuck up about playing with like rev bands and straight, like like youth crew bands. Like if you look at a lot of those flyers from the late 80s, there there'll be like a bunch of youth crew bands with soul side on the bill. And whereas if you look at some of the other discord gigographies, like there's, there are bands who like manage to avoid ever playing a show with any, like, you know, X on the hands hooded sweatshirt type bands. So I thought, I think that's cool that soul side were, you know, pretty open-minded about that shit, but they're, they're very melodic. They're very much in that right there in, in the ballpark of, revolution summer style music, which I think of as 
a few attributes would be like melodic bass lines, a lot of stuff on the bass plate on the D and the G string. And you hear a lot of, you know, regular ass hardcore where like, you know, the bass player never even touches those top two strings. And um, the other thing for the guitar is you have a lot of chords, but with like uh, open notes ringing out above them. Like Dag Nasty does that a lot too. And like the reason I didn't include Dag Nasty in this is because they themselves thought the idea of Revolution Summer was kind of silly. And it needs to be said that their bands from that previous generation that stick around into this era and like government issue and scream who don't, they're not technically revolution summer bands. I'm using air quotes right now. You have to take my word for it, but like they still like these bands still play shows together, but you can understand how maybe uh, um, an older band might be like revolution summer. What's this nonsense? But the thing is, that era of music was at the same time, very melodic, very arty and very political, which is kind of a a combination you don't see too much of. Like usually the evolution of a scene would, would be like super hard and fast and political. Then it gets like arty and, and melodic and alt Rocky. And then the politics kind of start fading away and it, it kind of went in the opposite direction for DC. And then you have, um, even though we're past the summer of 85, you have bands forming like fire party, Amy Pickering, the person who, who coined the phrase revolution summer. She starts a band that she is the singer of called fire party ignition, which is Alec Mackay's next band. And, uh, rain is another band. So these bands have that sound, even though they didn't technically exist in the summer of 85. So I think the whole vibe and feel and sound of the scene lasts kind of up to about 89. I'd say that's when Soulside breaks up. Embrace breaks up 86. Rites of Spring breaks up 86. Gray Matter breaks up 86. Beefeater maybe makes it to like 87, maybe even 80, maybe 86 for them too, whatever, somewhere around there, 87. So these are very, it's a very short lived scene with, um, you know, a handful of bands who, who don't last very long, but they leave a huge impression. And one of the biggest legacies, and I don't, I, and I think it's, it's the dreaded E word is connected to this scene. Like the first time any bands referred to as emo or emo core, I believe is either embrace or rights of spring. And you, there's a video of embrace playing in 86 and, and emo Kai's making a speech about what is this emo shit? Like the comedian emo Phillips, like he's already disowning it. And then I, I, I'm not positive about when the first bands come along that self-identify as emo when it is not a dirty word, but that happens well after this, I think. And there is definitely a musical influence with early proper capital E emo bands um, going back to these, these type of bands. And it's like, come on, dude, Rights of Spring is so original and so different sounding than anything before it. And one of their trademarks is how emotional they are that like, I hate to say it, but the term emo core is like, it's like fitting. Like if you came up with another term, like I invite anyone to come up with, with a better term to describe rights of spring or that specific sound. I don't know. We just call it revolution summer now because that's kind of the term that got thrown around at the time. 
I think something that like to to build off that, I think there's some kind of interesting things happening here that get glossed over because of the emo word. And I'm fairly sure I obviously could be wrong, which is why I said I'm fairly sure, but it might've even been Pusshead who reviewed rights of Springer and brace and called it emo core and thrasher. And that would, it would track that a journalist would do that. Right. Like come up with the term. But uh, I think in going back and listening to, like I listened to all these records, not just like the one track and the, you can make an argument the right to spring record is the hardest record. And even as, you know, Guy has said this, that he wasn't doing an emo band. He was reinterpreting hardcore. And I think it's kind of cool. If you look all these records, you know, save, uh, well, actually, no, all of them have black and white covers and they they go back. And I know, like, I'm not saying there was like a, um, concerted effort, you know, like it wasn't like, Oh, we're going to go, go back to looking like crass or something like that. But it's this weird mashup of like things are artier, but they're still kind of like very direct and primal just with like a little bit of a more artistic touch, but they're still really messy. It's not like these records look like they're going to come out on major labels. And I think because of like, we look everything through this emo scheme, you kind of forget that the music is still super aggressive. Even like embrace is a weird one because the music's so melodic, but then Ian's like cutting that with so much screaming. And, and I think it's, it's what, what you're seeing is the idea of emo is that you can have aggressive vocals that aren't over really overdriven music. And that's just kind of it stylistically. And, and then also this allusion to like, oh, okay, we're not just going to put a, you know, like a, a photo of like some, terrible thing that happened in the world and photocopy it and put our you know logo over and stencil letters it's like just a little more you know just introspective i guess but um the other thing i wanted to add is like it's pretty amazing short-lived thing there's a lot of they're taking the music out of the clubs and doing these uh drum protests these punk percussion protests and you know speaking out like really mobilizing around apartheid and it's it's cool that they didn't keep it insular, right? That they were they were over the idea of preaching to the converted. So I think that's like really important that they they took punk and because it was getting so violent, they opened it up to other people with other ideas, you know, rather than like you're probably not gonna sit around and bang a drum and change any skinhead's mind. So maybe you could do it in a more communal setting and bring people into the scene and add more creatives. So I, I think that's cool. And then the worst part about it, he's, he'll never hear this podcast. I bet is that Dave Grohl somehow has a hand in yet another thing in the world. And it has to be something so cool. Oh, well. Yeah. And it's kind of the first thing he's had a hand. He had a hand in, um, which is like, it's, it's strange. I don't want to say it's heartbreaking. It's strange, but, um, the other thing well, about Ed, to expand on that and keep it on Dave Grohl real quick. Um, you know, you said the scream was not a part of this, but their sound does change on the 86 album, which I believe is the one where Dave Grohl comes in, right? Doesn't he play on bang the drum? No, he comes in the one after that. Uh, uh, I think he might join the band around 87, but he's not on a record until 88. He's not on uh, a okay. record until no more censorship, but you're right. Their sound, the sound does change. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're like 
them and government issue are the ones that get out there the most. And there's always this like, and we can make an assumption, but as bands start touring for the most part, like, especially back then their sound suddenly changes, you know? And like, that was dad nasty's thing of why they weren't playing. They were like how they thought revolution summer was silly. Cause they thought it was too insular and they wanted to go tour and just be a band, not part of this, like, the scene or whatever. And they did go out and tour. And that was something that was, was not typical for a lot of the discord bands with scream being like the big exception and, and uh, bad brains. But now I'm just fucked, dude. I'm, I'm thinking like Dave Grohl is kind of like the weird, um, he's obviously incredibly talented drummer, but he's almost like the Forrest Gump of, of punk rock and music. Absolutely. <laughs> but, but Okay. But, but then elaborate for me, because maybe this whiffed over my head. Outside of playing in the band that was on the split seven inch, what is his big hand in this? Oh, he ends up I don't in think Scream. It's... Yeah, but later, and he said they weren't a part of it. Well, I also said that even though the bands that came before the summer of 85 and didn't consider themselves a part of it were still in the scene and still played with these bands. You oh, know? For sure, for sure. You, yeah, you know, yeah. there's a there's a lot of teams that win a World Series and you don't remember who was on the bench. You know what I mean? It's like he still he still gets a ring. You know what I mean? No, for yeah. sure. The no. one other one other thing I just wanted to mention real quick, Ben, um, before I shoot it back to you, is you said that this stretches out through '89, and we should just mention that uh, the first Fugazi record comes out in '88. So yeah, they kind of carry it along with them. Well, that. Th- they're kind of the culmination of this whole thing because you have the two big bands embrace and rights of spring and the singers of those bands combining forces to, to do a band with two lead singers and that's Fugazi. So it's sort of like, it's like, um, almost like a pyramid where Fugazi's at the top of the pyramid and like everything else is like leading up to that, that point, even though I, I will say I actually enjoy these bands more than I enjoy Fugazi. I think there's something a little bit more primal and 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 sort of um I guess uh rough around the edges um than Fugazi. Um but what what I want to say about what Pop said about like opening things up and and starting like legit protests in front of the Capitol building and 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 maybe broadening their horizons at the same time i think revolution summer there is a degree of elitism to it because it's a scene within a scene where the intent is what kind of music can we make that like skinhead tough guys scumbags who come to our shows and ruin it for everybody will hate like like we can't get rid of these people but maybe if we play music that is you know in such a way that they just don't want to come to our, the shows in the first place, then we've won. And so I think that might've actually happened. That might be that their strategy might've worked. I can't imagine too many. I'm sure there were a handful of skinheads at rights of spring shows starting shit, but by and large, I think the strategy might've paid off. So here's a, here's a weird question or it's just a question. And maybe Ben, you could kind of speak to it. These, the punk percussion protests, right? If you think about these bands, like you think of where, uh, you know, when Guy and Ian form, Guy and Ian form Fugazi, 
it's not really what anyone expects. It doesn't sound like an amalgamation of like their bands before. Cause Fugazi is just very like influenced by reggae influenced by ruts. They're very percussive, right? The, the bass is so prominent. Soul side ends up changing and they're more in this percussive thing. Beef Eater is a very percussive band. I, I, I would really be curious. I guess it's not a question to you cause you can't answer it, but I, w- I wonder if that, percussion you know ensemble idea influenced the bands going forward and if anyone there would be like yeah that did open our eyes up to these other rhythms because it it's such a it's kind of like a hallmark of of 90s dc is that it goes away from a lot of pop structure and it gets a little more rhythmic yeah you get bands like uh lungfish who are hyper repetitious it's like the same a five minute song with that's one part and and um which drives me nuts, by the way. And like Fugazi is as repetitious as I can handle. Jawbox uh, as well. Soulside definitely changes once they get Johnny Temple on bass by, on the second album. They definitely get more Fugazi-ish right around the time Fugazi puts out their first album. So it's kind of like a chicken or the egg question. Like what, who, who kind, who was really playing that s- exact style first uh, between those two bands? But I guess you could say that's probably the end then of of the beginning of the end of this sound of this kind of mid 80s dc melodic but you still have you know the drums are bashing away like like if you isolated the drum tracks on any one of these records not including beefeater who are funky it's basic punk music and then fugazi you don't have fugazi by the way the drummer is brendan canny of rights of spring it's almost like he's done playing punk music for the most part. It's like, okay, I've played like a fast four, four beat enough time to do something else. It's like, you would never guess it was the same guy. I'd never guess. Let's let's jump into the music of rise of spring and embrace when we do the next segment, but pops, can you give your, uh, your take on the gray matter song? I'm a huge gray matter fan. It was, uh, I was trying to articulate the way that they're poppy, that it's not, it's more, it's not really even power pop. It is that like sixties influence. Um, probably, you know, guys who really liked nuggets records and stuff like that and really warm, but still like fun and energetic and not overly sweet. And I, you know, I loved gray matter and three and, um, Senator flux and just like anything kind of related to, to the, that type of songwriting, you know, the, the, players who were in those bands but yeah i just again i think if you if we weren't attaching this word emo to it we're like oh that's just a super great melodic punk record you know it's still it's almost like the brand uh outshines how great some of the music is and and gray matter is one that i think people should go back to if they like anything you know really melodic without being too and i think the difference is they're not like anthemic they don't have these payoffs of some big gang vocal or something that might sound a little more British. It's still very, it's like a, it really is an amalgamation of like, like the, the punk that some people claim started in the sixties, more modernized for the time or something. I think it's kind of unfair that emo gets attached to this stuff because gray matter and rise of spring, like they low key kick ass, you know, like I think if the emo things attached, it, it must just be, to the vocals, but even then it's not, 
that it's emo in the way that a lot of people think of emo as a a negative. Like there's just a vulnerability in the voice, maybe. But but well, I and don't the lyrics know. too. But, the lyrics are are much more introspective than you know. Dead Kennedy's Franken Christ, which came out in '85 as well. For example, I just pulled that out of my ass. But like, there's definitely a sh- a lyrical shift with these fans. Totally. Like if if we were like, here's a good way to look at it. I don't know. Think of like a like what's the most emo-y like band in the '90s? Like say Promise Ring, right? There's, that's yeah. an example, or just just one, right? Promise Ring, and then think of um like the first drive like jehu record the first drive like jehu record is it just like the aesthetic of it and it's the aside from the the length of some of the songs it bears a lot more in common with rights of spring than promise ring do you know it's like this really and and rick froberg is like a huge fan of rights of spring and it's like or or maybe even like i think less pitchfork because of rights of spring i mean uh Jay, who's like so mangled, but the idea of like these screaming vocals, um, the music can be angular. It, it's super direct at times and it can go out. Like even rice of spring had parts that go out, but I, I think that's, that's the misnomer. Cause I mean, and this is no offense to the promise ring. I'm sure, you know, people in that band loved rights of spring, but to me, it doesn't come out in a lot of the things that go, get called emo at all. Like I don't see the, I don't really see the threads in any of this stuff. What if I really like zoom out? No, we're missing whatever. If if this is one and promise ring is two, we're missing the one point five of emo. Ben, where are you? The the one point five of emo is Moss Icon, who were a late eighties, early nineties, um, Maryland, close enough to DC band. I think they were from Annapolis, which is very close to DC. Um definitely i think but they, but they even started in 86 i mean i guess they are kind of one, they're 1. Well, 1.5 but, but you know they're still starting like on the heels of you know what right. i mean yeah and they're and they're bringing that sound into the early 90s they're absolutely like the connection between like the early 90s like emo bands where all the records are in manila envelopes and uh you know mm-hmm. hand stamped and shit and yeah, um, but musically are they boring well, musically, they <laughs> range. There's a there's a huge amount of range. There are like really like beautiful kind of promise ringy parts of songs. I'm so bad with song titles, but I can think of like you know I have like a guitar line going in my head right now. One of their songs, and then they have like really raging punk songs. So even within that band, you see that the progression from like the raging punk of Rites of Spring to the what people call twinkle or twinkle core, whatever the fuck, like braid style nineties emo Midwest. Yeah. Emo. They also introduce like the talkie singing on some songs that you hear in like a lot of those bands or like native knot or something like that. The only thing that's like the, the big difference with them is they were into like, they were huge post-punk fans and they were as much as into like joy division, which would become an influence later where like, I don't think braids influenced by joy division. This they're also just this very odd. They almost feel like a, an odd band that existed in their own little sphere. Um, but yeah, I think that is they. That makes sense calling them the bridge because they kind of they tread these two wor- worlds of like the quieter stuff and then the stuff that would be called screamo that was like part of the gravity scene. So I'd be curious yeah, they, to they, know that's a really good bridge. 
I'd also be curious to know if any of these Revolution Summer bands were aware at the time of the band Squirrel Bait, who were from Louisville, Kentucky, and doing something very similar at the exact same time. And those guys ended up forming Slint later on. But Squirrel Bait is like, they're the close, kind of the closest thing to Rites of Spring outside of DC, I think. They're not as good. I don't think they're as good, but very similar vibe and everything, energy. What do you think of that, Pops? No, I, I, if without, uh, I can't think of anything else that fits in that zone. I guess the only other thing, and they're more like a, I guess closer to Husker Du would be the Hated. And yeah, I, I was only thinking of that because I guess uh, Numero Group's about to reissue everything they've ever done or something. So, and that's again that, but that band, they also they were like another band in a bubble like that. That that sort of pocket is very weird. But yeah, I, I would yeah, Squirrel Bait's a good. That's a good analog. Yeah. Pops, and I tried to on the soul side song before we get out of here. Oh yeah. I love that soul side song. It's, it's pretty much their most melodic song. Um, their catchiest, maybe most straightforward song. I like where they went later on rhythmically, but I mean, that song's a ripper. That's kind of like remain their, their theme song, no matter what. Ben, is there anything else you want to touch on here? Do you, I think that you did a great job, but. You know, this is this is pretty a gnarly. This is a pretty gnarly thing to sum up. You know, in in ten minutes or whatever you did. So, anything else yeah. you want to speak on it? And pops, anything else you want to jump in on? I'm trying to cram in like ten episodes of end on end, and their episodes are like three and a half hours long each. So that's like thirty hours of of uh, stuff in thirty minutes. But um, I say just listen to the playlist. I tried to keep it bands that actually existed in 85 to, you know, to keep it as strict as possible to the definition. Um, but if you like that shit, just follow discord up to the end of the eighties and you're going to find a lot more stuff that sounds like this fire party, ignition, rain, rain wasn't really on discord, but you know, they had members in common with a lot of these bands. Yeah, the only thing I'd add is I don't know if the book's in print, but if you can find a copy of Mark Anderson's Dance of Days, there's a lot of info about this stuff, and I just went back to it, and it's uh, it's really cool. Like, you know, we our memories are a very tricky thing. Like, I'll be listening to a podcast, a podcast, and I'll be like, oh my god, I didn't know that thing, and then I'm going back rereading that book. I'm like, oh, he mapped it all out. I just forgot. So, if you can find that text, I don't know if it's in print. Definitely worth picking up. To end on this, like, what do you think the legacy of this is? Because we're talking about not seeing like a straight line to like the '90s emo and where emo would go beyond that. Like, is it just to Fugazi and then whatever Fugazi influences, or or where does this lead us? And what is the lasting legacy been? Um, I think it's not so much what the legacy of this is. It's more like. DC was far more documented than other punk scenes because they had, you know, documentarian minded people like Ian Mackay doing, doing the deed in real time. And it's just like, it seems like every scene sort of has this, um, uh, trajectory, uh, like this lifespan where, you know, kids, um, just learning how to play their instruments, get together, form bands. The scene starts, they get better at their instruments. Uh, more people come into the scene because the music gets better. And then at some point it becomes impersonal and there's uh, 
there are factors that people are not, you know, negative elements that, that creep into the scene, whether they be violence or, you know, heroin addiction. I didn't touch on that, but that, that was a big thing. Um, and then there's sort of like a reset button that a lot of scenes go through. And so the cool thing about revolution summer is it's like the, probably the most well-documented punk scene is DC. And so you get to see, you know, up to the month, like how these people are handling these issues that every scene goes through. I think like if you look at LA and all the violence and all the wackiness that happened, LA is an older scene. So it would have been like, we would have gotten stuff like into the unknown and, um, um, beneath the shadows, like bands doing weird stuff as almost like a reaction or like black flag slowing down to the, to a, to a crawl. Like, it's just that cool, like next step of it, of a scene where it's like, we can't just play like four chords really fast for the rest of our lives. We'll die of boredom and the people slamming to them are going to, we hate these people anyway. So, <laughs> so it's, it, I just think it's like a cool, like, it's like a case study of what happens next. No, no pun intended. And it's, it's kind of interesting in that way too, right? Because so many of these early DC hardcore bands, when they start, like the people are legit kids, you know? And, and I think that this stuff is interesting because a lot of the key players, they don't drop out after a couple of years when they mature, like they stay punk and they do other impressive bands, you know? You know, one thing I'll add is that <clears throat> I, I think what they did, if, if we're like for me to try to sum it up, it's just to show that a scene can react to itself in a positive way and create something different. Like it doesn't have to be whatever, um, you know, the scene isn't dictated by just the booking agents or the people coming to the shows and to kind of like bring a little, I don't know, I guess like personal experience into it. I remember when, not exactly when he moved, but I remember that Bobby Sullivan had gone to college and moved to Boston and he had such an impact on, a certain part of the hardcore scene that was starting to fragment where like people were getting sick of like the tough guy stuff in Boston, the violence in Boston. And they were incorporating, like he was working with food, not bombs and food, not bombs would come to shows. And we were just, you know, people were distributing food um, and starting to that parlayed into doing shows in this co-op market and like this whole other uh, not, parallel scene just like a totally different scene and that was like where a lot of bands that like converge would play a lot of those shows you know and they were more of like a political band at, or maybe not political but they were more of like a less of a metalcore band at the time and piebald would play those shows and then we're also you know bands like if rye coalition came to town they would play those shows uh, rather than you know the the club shows and that sort of that sort of idea that you can you can have ownership of the scene and i think that's really powerful and i i think that's that's being replicated in different ways today it's just about like it's really this almost an og idea of creating a safe space pops can you give a ballpark time frame of when you're talking about that happening in boston yeah so that's the bobby moved there i believe in the 80s Bobby Sullivan from Soulside, uh, or maybe 90, because then he started this 
or join this band Seven League Boots. But this is about starting from 90 and then getting full on by 90, like about 90, 91, 92, there was this place, House of Borax, and that would where it was a DIY uh, loft space where like Born Against, Rorschach, bands like that would play. And then that generation kind of phased out, moved away, and then younger people took it over, specifically a lot of younger women. And that extended, I would say, into the mid-90s. So there's like a couple different times, but they're really like the, the peak of like that next DIY generation was like started in 93. So rad closing thoughts, Ben. Yeah. Um, it really only takes uh, 12 people. Well, maybe 16 people to start a s- completely turn a scene around because three, four bands, four people in each band, actually less than that. Cause you can share members with, uh, you know, people in in multiple bands so a scene is really just three or four bands in a venue or two well and people to fucking show up and pay at the door let's not forget about the the people that really make it happen you're right you people have to care <laughs> <You know. laughs> that's why you got to be good right. when you start a band be good these bands are really good <laughs> yeah pops you got closing thoughts oh uh, yeah i forgot to mention to buy a book that is in print band in dc by cynthia Connolly, and um yeah, no, I I don't have anything f- further to add on what, and they ended up calling degradation winter. <laughs> right on. The fight lasts for hours, each ram battering the other dozens of times. Head-to-head. All right, we are going head-to-head. It is the Embrace LP, self-titled, versus the Rice of Spring, self-titled LP. And uh, yeah, just a little bit of info. Looks like the Rice of Spring, the LP was recorded in February of 85, comes out the same year. The Embrace LP... They play their first show in July of uh, 85 and their last show in, I believe, March of 86. So they record somewhere in there. The LP comes out in 87 after they break up. And uh, yeah, Ben, head to head. This is a rough one, huh? Yeah, this one was so rough. I had to listen to them back to back yesterday and really think about it and like not fiddle with my phone or do anything, but th- listen to the music and think about it. And, um, man, it's tough. I think Rites of Spring sounds more like a real band, like guy, kids who grew up together, just like rocking out. Like there's something more joyous about it. Rites of Spring, uh, embraces a little bit more, uh, somber in tone. Um, and it sounds like people who, well, I guess the guitarist, bassist, and drummer had been playing a lot together in the faith or before that, even though there's like a year gap. But there there are different vibes to, to these records. And I got into Embrace not that long after getting into the minor threat. I was like, oh, it's another this band with this guy singing. Okay. 
And uh, so that would have been like freshman year of high school. And I, and I try, and I liked it right away. And I tried getting into rights of spring a couple times and it didn't stick. I was like, I don't, uh, this isn't good. I don't get it. And then by like freshman year of college, I was really into it. So I spent a lot more time growing up listening to embrace than listening to rights of spring. And I think it's like, neither record is better than the other one. It's more like, what's your personal preference? What's your, form of emotional um uh expression and like i kind of if you want to kind of distill it down to me ian is like he's sort of the um apollonian sort of uh uh i use i don't know if it's right brain or left brain but kind of the more logical sort of uh thinker and then Guy is the more Dionysian um, uh, thinks with his heart kind of a guy and I'm I'm a little bit more on that team Ian tip myself so I'm going to go with Embrace for that reason one one record is not better than the other but it's Embrace's a little bit more my style I mean we can get into like tracks and all that but does that make sense of course. Yeah, we'll, we'll, let's jump into tracks after. So I think that obviously Ian is one of the greatest singers ever, right? And I think that his best skill is grabbing you. And sometimes it feels like he's like talking directly at you or you're so like into it that he's talking for you, right? But it's so like visceral and direct. And so while I think it works the best in minor threat because he has maybe the best shouting voice ever in embrace, it pulls me a little out of it. And maybe it's like a self-conscious thing. Like I feel like he's lecturing me sometimes. Like he's talking right at me like, Oh fuck dude. What I do this time. Sorry, Ian. Like the way that he grabs me, it almost pulls me out of the music. So I don't sit into this record and it's not always an enjoyable listen. Although there are all, there are tracks that are, great i like this album but i wouldn't say that it's like a an album that i can like settle into and enjoy listening it's, it's a more active listening experience than a passive one um and i think a lot of my favorite music i like it to function as both where it can be active or passive and jumping into this rise of spring like i know it gets lumped in with this revolution summer and you know, the Wikipedia says that like, maybe it's the first emo band. And I don't know, man, at the end of the day, like when I listen to this record, I just, I really think it kicks ass. Like, and, and I think that when I hammer down, like the music, I like, what do I like about music? It's like a lot of it. I just like music that kicks ass, you know? And I think this rise of spring album rips. Like, I think it's raging punk rock. It is. And it's like, yeah, it is. And like the singer's a wild man. You know, and even when they go into like, I don't know, what's the biggest pussy song on the record? Like Drink Deep, you know, like there's there's kind of like the woes and stuff and it's kind of a, a downer song, but it's like the singer's a wild man, dude. He's like going for it. It's so punk, dude. Like, I don't know. I don't get any emo off this at all. Like, this is just a raging great punk record. Like, it could be where, you know where black flag like goes, like I can see the direct correlation of early black flag to this, you know, like almost more so than like where black flag ends up, 
You know, I, I just, I don't know. This thing is like, it's so weird that it gets related with something that is kind of like the birth of emo. When I just think it's a raging punk record. It's like, you know, one of the best punk records ever. Well, it's you raging know, it's punk. So that's highly emotional. You know, it's both. Yeah. It's, it's highly emotional, but like, it's still wild. It's not like crying emotional. It's like a dude having like an emotional breakdown and like raging it out in his own way. You know, I don't know this rise of spring bodies embrace in my opinion. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. Pops. Let's go to you. Um, yeah, I, I guess we're going to get into songs later. I, I think what it came down to for me, like, and again, they're just, they're both great records. Every time we do these head to heads, we're going to have to bring that up. I think what rise of spring was more successful at is, is doing something super cohesive. Like every piece was perfect from the artwork to the presentation, to the lyrics, to like these really cool interludes in the songs that break up, like how heavy they can be. They're like, it's a really sneaky, heavy record. And, uh, I also think there's a, like listening to it a couple times recently, there's a lot of stuff on the B side that Swizz would later do. And it's really, really interesting because, you know, Swizz was trying to be a more back to the studs, hardcore band, but they still had all this influence of stuff they were seeing that they thought was amazing. And they're kind of like a weird, almost a bridge or maybe an anomaly. I don't know. But um, yeah, for me, it's just, for reasons we'll get into later, but I, I think <clears throat> there's there's these very special moments where a group of individuals get together and you can tell they're just driven to do a thing and it just happens. And I think the culmination of that is them recording this LP in the way they did and it just blowing everyone away, you know, to the point where like you, your criticism could be that they're crying and they're try hard and they're pretentious, but you couldn't say they're a bad band. I wouldn't even say that they're so they're try hard or pretentious. I don't get no, that. I said vibe critics at all. would. Oh yeah, but oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Get inside that critic head, pops. Like, what is their angle on thinking that? Why? Why would they consider that? I think because you're you're introducing this new vulnerable emotion in punk rock. You know, it. So if if you're if you're someone who's your basis of punk rock is like that first wave where everything's like super nihilistic or, you know, the first wave of hardcore or whatever, where things are like very simple and boiled down, but there's still there's for the most part, there's all these, these outlier bands that were antagonistic, but it's still drill sergeant. You did this. I'll do this. This is what you should do. This is fucked up. That's fucked up. And then now you have this guy who is super, he's, he's projecting a different energy um he's being super vulnerable he's leaving it all out there he's like singing about things that are totally different i think especially at a time where men coming off as feminine you know like anything pegged as feminine was seen as so negative even in a punk or hardcore scene them introducing that element was really i think jarring to some people and you know especially if you're like a meat and potatoes punk rock dude you're going to really hate this band and think they're like arts arty farty, you know? Yeah, that's wild. So you're going right to spring all day. Hell yeah. All right, let's dive into the songs. What, what, what did you want to dive into on this pops? I'll just start with the, 
one of the things that made the decision easier for me, and I, I love that Embrace record. I think they're they're always like this mashup of, you know, they're into Empire and this band, the Lime Spiders, who put out a really great one. Uh, they put out more than one thing, but one record's really great. And it just what they're doing is so driven by this melodic thing that like it never feels totally cohesive. And I think maybe that's why like it's almost another way of you're saying like you're feeling talked at because the music isn't really matching uh, the vocals and the music don't match. It's a good thing for the majority of it. And I think it's a challenging idea, but I I'm just kind of like, Oh, where would that band have gone? And then, this specifically songs, the one that made me be like, I can't pick this one is, uh, what's it called? Sorry. End of a year. It, it's like almost like the main, like the verse riff is, it almost has like a weird boogie, like that song, uh, pretenders back to Ohio. And it like, it feels like a skinny tie band for a minute. And then it totally does. It has, has like, you know what I mean? If there's someone different singing on that, it's like a very, of the time sort of new wavy song or something. It sounds and that, like now one just, it, oh, sound, it sounds like promises, promises by naked eyes. Do you remember that song? Promises, yeah. promises. Oh, yeah. That's the yeah, one. Totally. It, it's a dud. Like, but I think rights of spring have duds too, but for the most part, yeah. these are two great albums. Yeah. That embrace song is an outlier. It's like the second to last track. It's like they should have put as the last track, you know, because it's the one where they take the wild swing and, Depending on who you are, they hit or miss. Yeah, but, but if you're it, 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 the the other thing though is like they end with the ultimate song because it's one of their best songs. And Ian, he's really good at like punctuating a thing. Like, okay, salad days, that's over. Duh. Last song, we're doing this, you know. And like, I guess you could even say with like Fugazi's like last release was that seven inch that had furniture, which was one of their oldest songs. And it's kind of like he's really really good at punctuating moments with a with a tune but ultimately i just the the things that are like maybe a little eh on right to spring don't jump out at me like it still feels like a journey these feel like a collection of topics it's like it's like i'm going to talk about money i'm going to talk about parties and you're like okay dude like this is starting to feel like joe rogan dude i'm a little stressed out <laughs> ben, ben what do you think the duds are on the rights of spring uh, let's see here. Um, and do you think the drink deep is one of them? It might be, man. I'm, I suck at song titles, dude. Like I'm, just looking at, notes. That's all we, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I know I'm looking at these and I'm like, I can tell you that my favorite songs and the ones in between, I can't like, you'd have to hum them. And I'd be like, I'll buy that one. But, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, I think there's a point on side B of the rice of spring album where it's like, this is starting to like get a little long in the tooth. Um, it's it like, let's wrap things up here, fellas. I mean, end so on end. Because like, but I, I just feel like the rice of spring album bangs the whole way through and the embrace album sounds long to me. And pops, I want to bring up one other thing with you. Cause you've mentioned before that one of the things that you notice in music is if it has swing or not. And I really do think like, the embrace has lots of swing. Would you disagree with that? I wrote that down as a note from the first song. It has that like that upbeat swing, upbeat swing in the verses that is very like 
that's a sweet spot for me. And that I was noticing it. I also think too, it's really good to listen to this record because I listened to it so much on CD for a while. It's awesome to listen to on an album because the B side's darker, especially towards the end. And uh, the songs get a little mangled. Those are the ones that, like I was saying, they, there's like elements of Swizz in there. Um, it, it, it works for me, you know. I also, I also recommend going and listening to the other versions on that 10-inch, the demo versions that like have a lot more tape looping and stuff like that. But it's a, it's a cool contrast. Just speaking on Embrace a little bit more, Ben, do you – where where do you see the continuity between Embrace and Fugazi, and and I guess Rice of Spring and Fugazi as well? Uh, obviously in the vocals because they they're very clearly Ian sounds like Ian no matter what. Gee sounds like Gee no matter what. Um, I think that musically there's very little continuity. Like, okay, Ian plays guitar in. Fugazi. He didn't play guitar in Embrace. And I guess Guy eventually plays guitar in Fugazi, not on the first record. And he does play guitar in Rites of Spring, but he's also Eddie, Eddie Janie or Janie is like the main guy. So there's, I'd say it's a, there's a musical, there's a break there. And, and there are a few bands that these guys do. They sort of combine some of these guys combine forces just after the breakup of Embrace and Rites of Spring. You have this band One Last Wish, which is basically Rites of Spring with the guitarist of Embrace, Mike Hampton, on guitar. And that's incredible. I like that maybe more than either one of these bands. But um like I don't know. There's just this like these bands have a sort of it's like two sides to the same coin, you know? It's like left brain, right brain. <laughs> that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, Pops, do you have a take on that? No, I agree. It is. It is. It's two different approaches. Like they're both, they're both essentially doing the same thing. It's like we're reinterpreting hardcore again, but you know, we're adding dimensions to it. But they're both done in in, in totally different ways. And I, I think it is that simple. It's like you listen to the approach of what rights of springs doing and then uh embrace feels even though the music is like super intricate and really really interesting it's still feels very like uh like checklist bullet points uh a little more restrained or something it's still you know if 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 those vocals were over music that was more straightforward it'd be like a super hardcore ripper record you know so that's that's kind of the difference. And then as far as like anything translating into Fugazi, it's just like, wow, what would, what would those two brains do together over music that wasn't straightforward? Like, that's it. Just what, what do those brains sound like? And, Oh, we, we just happen to have a killer rhythm section that can let those two explore. And, but, but there's no, like other than their voices, there's no specific elements that like translate into it where you're like, Oh, that's like an embrace part. No. Side A versus Side B. All right. We are doing Side A, Side B for the LP Wind of Pain by the band Bastard out of Japan. Came out 1992 on Bastard Records and Bloodsucker Records. 
good God, man. This is the ultimate palate cleanser. I love, oh, that was my cat. I love this album so much. Ben, were you aware of this at all? And what's your take on it? I never really got into Japanese hardcore. This is definitely one of the maybe five or six bands everyone mentions when they just kind of run off their list of, you know, their favorite Japanese hardcore bands. But this is the first time I sat down and listened to any, any of their records. And like, I feel like such a poser talking about Japanese hardcore because when I listen to this, I think, wow, this, this sounds like discharge. And then I hit up my friends who actually know anything at all about Japanese hardcore, including John Westbrook, who was my bandmate in broken needle. And we went, we toured Japan together. Uh, we didn't play with bastard, but, um, we did play with gauze and he's like, "Mm, nah, this isn't like, I, I asked, is this D beat? And he's like, no, not, no, it isn't. And I'm like, what? It sounds like discharge. And he's like, yeah, but they don't use the D beat a lot. And, and I was like, I'm, and then I asked my friend, Mike Dunn, who knows everything about music. Is this D beat? No, it isn't. There's lots of other influences, which I'm sure there are. These, these people know what they're talking about. And I don't, but it's like, God damn, that means that there's like several hundred other bands that actually sound more like Discharge than this band. That's like scary to me because I hear the song Side A, Misery, Flash Out, Never Change, okay, Fast Discharge, Fast Discharge, Never Change, Slow Intro, Song's Gonna Be Slow, Psych, Fast Discharge part towards the end. We go to Side B, Wind of Pain, you got that cool Tom intro the fast part. And then you got that Tom heavy breakdown and then it goes fast again. And it's like, I guess it's doesn't sound exactly like something you'd hear on a discharge record. And then to the stumped underdogs, you got that chugging slow thing, psych fast part, then back to slow. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, Oh, this is cool. It's a little different. It's like, no, we're going to fucking just rage out the gate. We're going to, after our little intro, and like the way to survive, there is a song off Hear Nothing, See Nothing, Say Nothing. If I wasn't so bad with song titles, I'd just be like, it, this song sounds like one of those songs. It's um, And then Truth has like, you know, some ripping discharge style solo over those gang backups going, truth, truth, truth. And so, first of all, this record came out in 1992. Try finding five American hardcore bands that are this like, like straightforward fast hardcore they came out in 92 that's like the low point for american hardcore for just if your idea of hardcore is like 1982 four chords fast even if it's it isn't necessarily you know uk style there's the u.s has very little to offer so it's cool that out of japan you have bands like this keeping the fast shit alive um but then we should we should specify without going to a blast beat or a scissor beat like it's just a straight fast beat yeah that's what i mean i'm not talking about because when you go to a blast beat that kind of that muddies the waters because i associate that strangely enough with metal even if that's not correct because napalm death did it so much um, yeah, you have you have grindcore and you have grindcore, yeah, yeah, and and whatever else, power violence, right? So this is like straight, tried and true, fast beat, raging hardcore. 
And, and and I also I I don't mean to cut you off, dude, but just to say, <laughs> dude, I think that if you say this doesn't sound like DB hardcore, like you're thinking too much. This is like raging DB hardcore. It's just like you know, it's like Bob Backlund was once the WWF champion, and then it's like Hulk Hogan. It's like a dude on cocaine and fucking steroids. You know, it's the same thing. It's still the champ, <laughs> but it's like there's all. This is like the fucking apex version. You know, after like that's it. It's like it's DB, but cocaine and steroids. Even though they're probably not into either. You know, or maybe they are. Who knows? But like musically, that's what it's like. Well, here's what John Westbrook says. I said, okay, what would you estimate the primary musical influences were on the Wind of Pain record? And he goes, probably all Japanese bands. A lot of people compare them to the Cro-Mags. Sidebar, I think that's because the Cro-Mags are heavily influenced by Discharge. That's me, Ben, talking. Back to John talking. But it's probably all stuff like Death Side, Lip, Lip Cream, and Gauze. I'm sure Discharge in Chaos UK, too. And then we were trying to figure out, like, when did Discharge first tour Japan? Maybe if they got there super early, that would explain the heavy footprint on the um, scene over there. And he goes, I think it's a little later. Like, maybe Discharge didn't show up in Japan until 86. And I was like, well, I wonder why Discharge seems to have more influence on Japan than a band like DOA or whatever. I'm just pulling a name out of my ass. And then he says... Well, Chaos UK was the big influence in the, in the 80s, and they toured there. And that makes sense, because Chaos UK is one of those bands that I got a cassette of theirs when I was very young, didn't didn't really connect with me at all, and I don't really think about until you really zone in on like UK, UK 82 type stuff. And, and it is, you know, it's fast, raging British hardcore. Um, and then... Mike Dunn says um, that he thinks that the influences on this record are mid to late 80s Japanese stuff like Gauze and Lip Cream, and then American hardcore like AF and SSD, and then crust type heaviness, and of course, Discharge. Well, I don't, part me, this is Ben talking, I don't hear AF or SSD in, in, in this record. Um, I don't know how you feel about that. Well, they do have some like typical breakdown parts, you know, where it's like, okay, here comes a breakdown and they go there, which could be like victim and pain in a way, although they don't ever touch into making in any sort of anthemic breakdown or sing along, you know, except for maybe the, the very last song when they repeat uh, the word over and over, right? Like the very yeah. last song, they're like going for it, but like, that's still not anthemic in any way. You know, I think and they there's just some parts to. in Wind of Pain that the song Wind of Pain that they do sound like early New York hardcore. I think like the it's more of like that tribal beat, but then it goes into like a little more evil direction, like a darker direction. And I think that's the discharge thing, I guess. But I didn't I didn't hear it as I mean I I don't hear it as straightforward as just like a, a very samey D beat record. Like I have a very different take. Oh, that's sick. just one more thing. Like the, the early New York hardcore thing, like especially victim and pain, you know, they do on those breakdown parts, they do have some of the do, do, da do, 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 da do, 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 da like kind of the, the tried and true breakdown tempo stuff. Uh, Pops, how do you hear it? So, I mean, this record's what, like 17 minutes or something like that, 16 minutes, which it's, I was listening to it and I was, uh, you know, 
I'm listening to it through this lens of like, what side do I like better? And it, in a, in a fucking, in kind of a cool way, it sounds like one song with a, that gets more dynamic towards the end. Like it just keeps building up into this wild thing. And then that, I was like, why am I thinking that? I'm like, I don't know. Isn't that like what fucked up does or something like that? Like, I'm sure they could have a record called bastard. It's 16 minutes long, call it one song. And that's, that's a different way to look at it. And but it, it like felt, it felt like that. And I, I, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of dynamics in there. It's just, it's a, it's a rager and I, it, it feels like fucking, uh, what someone might say, like, a a night on Coke feels like it's like super manic and fucking speedy and then has these weird parts on it. So just alluding to your, uh, wrestling cocaine drug, uh, comparison is definitely feels a little druggy. It's just like the most intense piece of hardcore. Like I think I've listened to that falls into 80% of it just being like, like it never gets old. Like every fast part is like a variation on that. And it just pounds the whole way through. And I don't know. It, it This is like the most relentless record maybe ever. Like it should have like to, to add to pops's idea of it being one song. Like this would have been perfect on like a one sided 12 inch, you know, because like it, it yeah. should just be ingested that way it's so brutal. It never like lets you up. Like it's like drowning you, you know, like, Oh, let me up. You know, like when uh, you watch a movie and like they're torturing someone for information by like bobbing their head into a tank, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like the ultimate metaphor for this record, Ben, but let's get back to you. Like side A or side B. Yeah. Um, side A only has three songs and side B has five and you get a little bit more of the range that the band is what little range the band is capable of. I mean, like you said, it's raging the whole way through. There are, there are more tempo changes on side B. So you, you get that. So you get, you get a better snapshot of, of bastard as a band with side B. That's why that's my choice. I mean, obviously you get more songs, so why wouldn't you get more variation or variety? so side B is my answer, but I will add, this is a very well-recorded record. Like I have absolutely zero complaints about the production on this record. This is the way this kind of music should be, should sound on a record. Do you agree with that, Zach? Yes. It's so bright. And that's why it sounds so gnarly. Like we're, I've never, I don't know. Like, I think that people are smarter than me and they have a better ear than me and everything and they can look past things and I can't right. Like I want stuff to sound dope. I want music to bring the heat and I want it to sound good. Right. Like why is Slayer rain and blood so great? Well, the songs kick ass and the thing sounds perfect, you know? And like, this is literally the same thing, you know, in those two aspects, obviously they don't sound anything I like except for that. They are grabbing you by the neck and smashing against the wall for 20 to 30 minutes, you know? It's wild. I do wanted to say, Ben, I think that you said capable of, and I think that's maybe a rude word because I think that this is really deliberate, you know, like who knows what they're capable of. I think they like deliberately stripped out all the bullshit and just made this rager. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I didn't mean it to be negative. Um, The guitar playing is excellent on this. Um, Everything is. So 
they're doing what they do very well. I don't, I can't make out any of the lyrics. I'm, I was never a lyrics guy anyway, so that doesn't bother me too much. Um, can you make out any of the lyrics, Zach? Yeah, he goes, misery. Oh yeah. I hear truth. Um, yeah, it's sick. You can hear wind of pain. You can hear every, never change. Like they did a pretty good job of like generic hardcore wise, like whatever the song titles are, it's in the song somewhere. So you're like, hell yeah. I know that part. How did you get in? How did you discover this sack? You're not, don't, I, Japanese, uh, music doesn't come up very often on this pod. So I'm wondering how, how you got turned on to this record. Well, what if we talked about when it comes to like every subgenre, right? I'm a poser of every subgenre, you know? And so like, that's what it is. Like, I like very limited stuff of this and I listen to it and I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. And then you hear all the other bands that are name checked and I'm like, oh, that recording sucks. I don't like it. You know, or like this gets too weird. Like it hurts my brain, you know, but like, that's why this thing is so straightforward and so bright. I just love it. So I don't know. It got name checked at some point and I looked it up and liked it like in the blog spot era, you know, where it's like people talk about something on a blog and say, this is amazing. And then like you download it cause YOLO. And then it's like, you like one out of 20 things. And this is one of the things that I liked, you know? We need someone on the pod to do Japanese hardcore starter kit. I'm, I'm going to brainstorm. We should all brainstorm someone we know who really can do it justice because like, I want to just like learn, you know? Yeah. But also like the, the exercise for this week, cause I know that none of us are aficionados of the genre is just to like pluck out an album. So all the listeners too, they can just be like, this album's dope. And like, that's a, that's a problem with like punk and hardcore. I think too, is like, there always has to be like so much attached to everything. And I think that sometimes we can't just like embrace when an album rules and not worry about it. Like beyond that, you know, like I've, I've attacked other genres like that. Like when I got way into dub reggae, it's like, I made a concerned effort to like not learn anything about these people. Cause like, I don't want to like get into like King jammy. And then someone's like, Oh dude, King Jammy's a bitch. He like stole from King Tubby. It's like, man, I just want to like the lyrics or I mean, I just want to like the music, you know, like I don't want to deal with all the drama. And the this is a good, like- this is a good band for that because you know, in what, what I understand is like, these weren't like proven people in this band. It wasn't like they, some of them had done some other stuff, but it wasn't like, Oh, there's all this excitement. These dudes are going to start this fucking brutal band. It just kind of happened and came out and pummeled everyone. And almost in the same way, like, I guess it would be different if you grew up in Cal, you know, like the area of California or Pomona or whatever. That's how Infelt Fest, uh, Infest felt. It was like, what? These aren't like scenes. To, there's no anticipation here. It's just this thing that just uh, fucking strangles you. Um, and that's the kind of thing it's like, I don't, it's cool to know what bands like. I love, I love that part of it, but I don't feel like, like, Oh, I got to dig into this genre. And now I need to get every band. Like I don't like to go into it with that expectation. Cause I, I just rather, sometimes I just like to, to pluck the cream out, you know, and I'm cool with that. Yeah. Ben, like overall, like, would you, if someone just asks you, like, do you like this record? Would you say yes or no? I'd say it's very good. I can't see myself listening to it very much. Yeah. Same question. You pops. And then also side a side B. Um, I'm taking side B cause it's more dynamic. I love this record. 
and I would I would recommend it to any hardcore punk fan to give it like a couple spins. It's short. It's so short and so palatable, and it sounds so good. And if people haven't heard this, you gotta listen to it. It's amazing. Um, side A by side B is is hard. I think it's hilarious that they didn't like split it down the middle. That's wild. Like, all right, three songs on side A and five on side B. You know, uh, maybe it. I don't know if it evens out mathematically or something. Maybe it does because there's a couple minute songs on the second side. This thing bangs so hard. You guys like when it, uh, you know, chooses side B because there's a little more variation. I think the only song on here that's like not a 10 out of 10 is uh, that the way to survive song that is just not the rager. It's still kind of a cool song, but it's like if they pluck that song off, like this would be like a 10 out of 10, like full on relentless album instead of it's instead it's like a 9.5 fully relentless. Um, it's just so hard because Dear Cops on side B and that is like maybe the oh God, I'm going side A. Fuck it. Those three songs are so gnarly, you know, and just one, two, three. And also like that feeling you get, you know, when you put on a record and you know what's coming, like that can't be replicated. And so like a lot of times people's favorite tracks are side one off the record. And I don't know if it's an indicate indicative indicative. What's the word, Ben? Indicative. Indicative. Thank you very much. Um, I don't know if it's indicative of like loving that song specifically, or if it's loving like the album, because like that song comes on and it gives you like the feel and the excitement of like, I'm going to take you in this whole thing right now. So uh, I'm going side a for that feeling that misery gives me and shout out to the word indicative and shout out to uh, John Westbrook. And what was the other, other gentleman? Mike uh, Dunn, Mike Dunn. Yeah. Yeah, dude. True. Japanese hardcore fans. That's what's up. I'm taking it back to the old school because I'm an old fool. I'm taking it back to the old school because I'm an old fool. Old school spotlight. All right, we're going old school. Ben chose this one. It is a rager. We are talking. Do you not say the ruts, Ben? You just say ruts? Um, It's the ruts. There's a the in there. All right. All right, we're saying it's the rut seven inch Babylon's burning side a Babylon's burning side B society 1979 on Virgin records. How about that? Ben, this is classic, right? Yeah. And you know, it's funny. Maybe you do say ruts. Well, it depends on the record. This record, there's no the in the artwork. So Discogs has it as ruts and What's interesting about this? Oh, actually, a little bit of, of trivia, Zach. What other record did we talk about that is on Virgin Records on this podcast? Oh, I don't know, but uh, all those like UK bands were on major labels, right? So, is the Clash or the Damned on Virgin? It was the Sex Pistols. Okay, close enough. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And that's yeah. why I'm not on trivia. I'm the host. Um. Yeah, so this is their second single. It came out in 79. Uh, they were a band from Lo- the London area. They're kind of from all over, but definitely, um, you know, they're an English punk band. This started in 1977. This, I didn't know this until today, this hit number seven on the UK singles chart. So if you looked at, 
you know, the Billboard singles chart right now, you know, Dua Lipa or wherever the fuck would be number seven. It's like there was a time and a place where this song was number seven, which I think is fucking amazing. Um, and because it's a great song and it's total punk rock music. And um, this band didn't last very long. Well, the singer died of a heroin overdose in 1980, and then they continued on as Ruts DC after he died. And I don't, I'm completely obsessed with all the stuff Malcolm Owen is on and don't care at all about Ruts DC. Um, but this is a great song. Babylon's Burning is kind of like the song they're known for. I nothing else nothing got uh got to number 6 on the UK singles chart or above. <laughs> <laughs> I I think th- my only criticism of this song it's a total anthem but like and I and I don't know if I c- I'd make this criticism of any other song but there aren't enough lyrics like it's not telling you what who's burning babylon and why do you know what I'm talking about? It's because we've never written a chorus that good, dude. We don't know what we would do with it either. You know, it's like, just fucking milk it, dude. Fuck it. And they got to number seven, dude. They milked it properly. One of the, I was reading an interview with one of the members, and he spoke on that. And he was saying that the song, the you know, Babylon's Burning is really rooted in reggae. And he thought the idea of, like, keeping the chorus super simple like a reggae song, just repetitive and simple was like the genius of it. So it's like, I guess very intentional to keep it sparse and like that nod to reggae where it's like, just, but I, but I get what you're saying. It's like, I need a couple more pieces to the puzzle here, <laughs> but maybe the verse lyrics were the first things that went up in flames. Yeah. Cause it's like, do, should are we burning babylon like are we pro babylon being burned of course it's babylon babylon's a, a terrible place but it's almost Unless like you got a good apartment that's true but it's almost like am i rooting against the guy holding the the torch and the and the pitchfork or am i am i standing behind him going yeah like i don't know and maybe that am- ambiguity uh helped it get on the charts because you know, if they had mentioned Margaret Thatcher by name, for example, she came into power that year, you know, the uptight BBC would say, uh, we're not going to play this record on the air. I can completely see that happening. Um, and then the B side is the B side is the rager society. Um, really fast punk song. Um, they had they have another song savage circle that kind of alternates between this really tribal sounding thing and really fast choruses and um or whatever verses it's kind of hard to tell but like those are like the two like when i've ruts is a big influence on hardcore in the u.s particularly in washington dc and I'd point to a, a a song like society or savage circle and be like okay i see it like we we all know the damned played really fast and they toured the US before anyone else and they were a huge influence on the United States punk bands but but this is kind of like the sort of like you you dug a little deeper and then you found the ruts not much deeper cuz they were on virgin records but you know <laughs> and they hit number 7 on the singles chart <laughs> yeah, but only in the UK you know there were nobody's here yeah, but, yeah no fair no and fair. i don't want what, one note real quick if you um the first song on the first Rust DC album, Animal Now, 
it's called Mirror Smashed, and the, the chorus it goes out kind of wild, but the beginning of it is such a blueprint of Fugazi. Like you could just if you listen to that song, you just hear Fugazi uh, instantly. Like it takes that idea of like the bass driven uh, like tribal sound of Savage Circle, even makes it a little crunchier. And uh, I was just listening to that today, and it, I just wanted to note that because it's a cool little Easter egg if you uh, find it on YouTube. And on the first, that is super cool. And also, also tying it back to DC though, like in talking about that fast beat, 1979, and this fast beat, dude. Who else is like going this fast? Like we've talked about the middle class seven inch before, right? And it, but we said it's it's like not fast in like the aggressive way. It's kind of like zany. But like this song society is just as fast as like the, the bad brains are in 79. Like if you listen to the, the black dots of 79, correct Ben? Yeah, that's right. Right. So if you listen to that, like their versions of like paid to come and band in DC are this speed. Like they're playing the exact same speed as the bad brains, which is wild. Yeah. And there's, there's a also a uh, love song comes out that year too, right? Right. The damned the are fast. Germs are fast. Germs LP comes out in 79. So 79 things are really picking up speed on both sides of the pond. Definitely. Um, and, but what's interesting about ruts is like, you look at them, like there's a mu- they made a music video for the song, something that I said, which I think is a very big influence on the band scream. If you listen to that, you'd be like, this could be a scream song, different, different vocal style, but musically it hits all that mid eighties DC guitar stuff. Um, like they look normal. Like they don't look like, you know, like it's, it's like the U S gradually leans normal. And then the UK as the years advance into the eighties get like three foot high Mohawks and like leather jackets that look like a porcupine. Like these guys look fucking they wear like button down shirts and so maybe even their look might have been an influence on like you know discord bands or whatever just because they they look so normal um but they are and and they almost seem like more mature like i like they had been practicing their instruments long before punk became a thing and then they were ready for it when it happened i don't know i'm just speculating malcolm owen was 26 when he died so that means he was he must have been around 23 when they started which you know, I'm 43. That seems like a very young person, but really like sex pistols were like 19, 18, 19 year olds when they started. So he was kind of like seasoned, um, when they started, I mean, uh, not a, a super young dude, but, um, I don't know. This is a great record. And, and the weird thing about this record is I, um, got into the ruts super late, like didn't really get into them until I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And then I went through my singles recently. Cause I never listen to my seven inches anymore. I'm like, Zach, I have them like t- tucked away in a closet and I have this single. And I, I, th- I thought to myself, this must've either belonged to my dad or my dad's friend who gave me all his punk singles on my 15th birthday. So I actually had this ruts record like for decades before I even bothered becoming a ruts fan. So now I have the single and I don't have to buy it. <laughs> Pops go in on this. I just, I love this band. Um, I didn't get into them. I think until college, just like getting a copy of the first record and, you know, he also, I was going into it hearing like, like they're a classic band, but they're also an influence on these other things. So that got me really invested in it. Um, 
but yeah, this, this single's a ripper. Um, I like, I like both sides for different reasons. And the one thing, like there was one point where I was listening to the ruts and I was like, wow, Mark Ryan kind of sounds like Malcolm Owen at times. And now I can't unhear it. I hear little bits of that like raspy, cool voice. Cause you know, Mark Ryan's got such a unique voice and uh, it's like so impossible to pin down like super touch is such a unique band. So something that remotely reminds you of it, it always sticks out. But um, yeah, it's just, I, I think, you know, in the U S a band that doesn't get name checked enough and, it's it's always good to like I'm not an algorithm person, so I don't get like a little nudge from an algorithm. I'll just kind of look through my my stuff and be like, Oh, I haven't listened to that for a while. And it sounds really you know, like all these songs sound fresh. And here's is the LP a- as good as these two songs? Because they have an LP that comes out in seventy nine as well. I think these two songs are on the LP, a different yeah. different recordings of them. Um and there is a lot of but good that's stuff. Are they the, are they the yeah. best songs? Uh no, I think there are other songs that are just as good, if not better, on The Crack. That's the name of the LP. The only LP Malcolm Owen was on before dying. Um, I'm looking. Savage Circles, incredible. Something that I said is incredible. Yeah, you got to have this record. Dope for Guns. They have this rhythmic thing that's like, you know, Back Against the Wall by Circle Jerks. It's like, wow, what are they doing? They're so off tempo they're offbeat like there's the i there's a lot of stuff like that with this like this would be like if you were decided to be a ruts cover band for halloween you'd be in a world of pain like it would be really difficult to pull off some of this stuff on a rhythmic level um but here's what got me into this band it wasn't that album which i had before really becoming a legit fan of them it, it's the peel sessions album because you know how john peel had this show on bbc and he'd do these peel sessions where he'd have a band come in and they'd have like four hours to record four songs so you have that kind of rawness and energy of a live show but it's still perfectly played like a record so it's somewhere peel sessions are fall somewhere in between like a regular record and a live and a live performance. And, and this shit is like, this is the way this is meant to be heard. The ruts, the peel sessions album. You recommend that over the LP. I do. I, I pops. Yes. Or pops. Are you familiar with that? And can you speak on that? I'm not too familiar with that one. I've, I've heard it, but it's not like burned in my brain. Like I, I don't think you can go wrong with buying the crack, but I'll I'll uh, I'll default to Ben because uh, that sounded compelling. You sold me on it. Yeah, man, I can't wait. Everyone, check out everything we uh, talked about today. Go to one hundred eighty-five miles south dot com. You can click that playlist link at the top of the page and listen to the music we talked about because it is about the music more so than everything. And uh, Ben, where can the people find you? I'm on Instagram at Cold Chillin Book. And pops, where can everyone find you? I'm going old school. You can you can find me at anthonypopolardo.com. I just got that URL. I'm stoked. Hell yeah. That rules, dude. Hell yeah, that rules. Oh, they were um, trying to oversell it for years, and then it expired. Dude won 8K. Shit. I used to own some funny URLs that uh, I let expire. I'll tell you offline. And maybe I'll tell the Patreons if you hit me up. What's up, people? 
get at me 185 miles south at Instagram, 185 miles south at gmail.com. And, you know, Retaliate is the best, is the best Instagram and Zach Retaliate on Instagram as well. Everyone, we'll talk to you on Monday. Thanks for the support. 